0: This is Life Admin Life Hacks, a podcast that gives you techniques, tips and tools to tackle your life admin more efficiently, to save your time, your money and improve your household harmony.
1: I'm Dunara Roberts, an operations manager with two kids that seem to create more than their fair share of life admin in our family.
0: I'm Mia Northrop, a researcher and writer who's about to get my kids fully adopting calendars, notes, lists, password managers, and reminders on their iPads. It's
1: not just for Minecraft anymore. This episode, we interview parenting expert, Michael Gross.
0: Hello and welcome to Life Admin Life Hacks and welcome listeners to season six of the show. We've missed recording these episodes and have had an enormous number of ideas to bring to you in this second half of the year. So we hope you've had time during our hiatus to delve into the episode archives and adopt some new tools and approaches to get your life admin humming.
1: We're going to explore lots of new territory this season as well as revisiting some previously discussed concepts in depth to get you back on track. Our book, Life Admin Hacks, a step-by-step guide to saving time and money, reducing the mental load and streamlining your life, is at the proofreading stage. It's so exciting. (laughs) It's going to be on your shelves from January the 5th next year, so you can sign up to be notified about the book release at our website, lifeadminlifehacks.com. Just head to the section called book.
0: We've also introduced one-on-one coaching and small group coaching programs for those of you who want a cheerleader slash accountability partner slash (laughs) expert to help you level up your life admin game quickly. I've spent the last six months immersed in coach training so that I can partner with clients to identify their obstacles and explore the options at hand and get their life admin under control. So I'd love to work with you to free yourself from the burden of life admin and you can head to the website and book a free discovery call
1: with me if you'd like to find out more. And now to today's episode. Our recent survey of over 300 Australians revealed that parents do one-third more life admin tasks than those without kids and they're twice as likely to struggle for time. So the question we've got is how do we get kids to contribute more and relieve the burden and grow up to be efficient at their own life admin. Yeah, this is something that we've discussed with guests in the past. And we've referenced it heavily in the book
0: because insourcing is the new outsourcing. If they can help with more stuff, (laughs) then they should. And obviously, yeah, we want them to be equipped with the skills as well so they can live full and happy lives with their life admin under control. But for this, we wanted to pull out the big guns and consult an expert in parenting independent
1: children. Yeah so stay tuned because Michael gives us some great gems of wisdom including that parents often underestimate their child's capabilities by around three years. That you can devise a junior version of the game when you think about life admin. Just like AFL has developed Ozkick and Netball have developed Netset Go, you can think about developing a junior set of life admin tasks to help set up expectations appropriately. And for kids Self help starts with tasks related to their body and moves out into the home and then into the world. So it's a really great way of thinking about what tasks you can get kids started with. If you'd like to know how best to give your child space to grow into capable kids who can handle their own life admin, this is the episode for you.
0: Michael Gross, founder of Parenting Ideas, is one of Australia's leading parenting educators informing and inspiring audiences in Australia and around the world for more than 20 years. Michael is a former primary school teacher with 15 years experience, holds a Master of Educational Studies specialising in parenting education, and is the father of three kids. He's a best-selling author of 12 books for parents, including Spoonfed Generation, Thriving, Anxious Kids, and his latest re-release, Why Firstborns Rule the World and Laterborns Want to Change It. Michael has had parenting segments on The Project, The Today Show, Weekend Sunrise, ABC and more, and he's contributed to HuffPost, KidSpot and Mamma Mia, as well as being a columnist with both News and Fairfax newspapers. And now he's gracing life admin life hacks with his expertise and experience and we are humbled. Thank you so much for coming
1: on the show.
2: Good on you, thanks for having me.
1: Uh, Michael, it's quite common for people to think about how kids can contribute to housework like cleaning, cooking and laundry and the appropriate ages and stages for them to help out with these things. But life admin is really in a category of its own. So we're so thrilled to be able to talk to you about how we should nurture kids to develop their personal administrative skills and contribute to this aspect of the household. Uh, In several of our episodes, we've had guests like Tracy Spicer reveal what their kids plan and take responsibility for and often blows our minds and thinks about, you know, helps us redefine what we might expect our own kids to do. So in what areas do you think kids are often more capable than parents give them credit for?
2: Yeah, parents often underestimate what kids can achieve and what they can do there's an old saying I've always followed it with parents will often underestimate their kids by about three years and children will overestimate what they can do by about three years so maybe there's a a meeting of in in the mix there but I I guess I'm I come from a different generation for those people who can't see me now they won't be able to see the gray hair so I am a different generation and I was raised with lots of brothers and sisters and so way I was raised is you just sort of had to do things for yourself. That was an, an expectation. It was a large family expectation. And as families have shrunk, we tend to do a little bit more for kids and that just becomes normal. And we often underestimate the fact that kids can do a lot of things for themselves. And professionally, my professional background in, in parenting, and I was mentored by a fellow who's passed away now, but Professor Morris Bolson from Monash University, who wrote a book in the 1970s. And this shows my age a bit, a bit, but in the 70s and 80s, he was a bit of an early guru. He used to actually go on radio on 3AW and answer people's questions about parenting. That was before parenting is now an industry. Um, those were the days when if you went to a parenting session, you'd sort of only whisper it because, you know, parenting was education was sort of linked with poor parenting now it's very normal which was good but Murray always used to say never regularly do for a child the things a child could do for him or herself so the whole notion of I guess parenting from that perspective and I guess it's in my DNA is uh, as much as you possibly can standing back and allowing kids to do things from the earliest possible age and That's even toddlerhood. I know I've had my bag carried into parenting seminars by three-year-old toddlers whose parents say, no, no, and I go, yeah, okay, you can help. And, you know, it's carried for about a foot and a half, about half a metre put down, but at least they're trying. So it's often in those early years if we can actually grab those efforts them to help and to do things for themselves, it often becomes normal, becomes a pattern. So I always say, start early.
0: Yeah, I do love that saying of never regularly do for a kid what they can do for themselves. And I think about that when I'm hanging up towels in the bathroom, when I'm putting plates in the dishwasher, thinking, is this regularly? How, how regularly do I do this? <laughs> blows my mind. Yeah,
2: and, and this is where <laughs> we need to keep balance. Mm. Otherwise, life becomes very slow. Yeah. And I remember I was an at-home dad for my youngest child. I've got three kids and I was the at-home dad for my youngest child my wife went back to work and i remember i used to add about five minutes to every interaction with her because she wanted to do it herself Mm -hmm. so going you know dashing out the door to kinder i'd be going i'll do up your shoes she said no i can do very frustratingly you stand back and allow her to do it but i think if you did that all the time nothing would ever get done so there is a little bit of a balance but i think most parents your parent and listening to this with with younger kids you'll know that you actually need to slow yourself down a little bit and Mm -hmm. uh moving kids' pace, particularly if you want to develop that little bit of independence and teach them how to be organised.
0: Yeah, and that I can do, the focus of what those tasks are, very much changes when they hit you know, teens, teenagers. what do you hear from kids about where they'd actually like more autonomy and independence in their lives?
2: Yeah, look, toddlers and teens, they're almost similar in groups actually. I always put them together. That they want more autonomy. So toddlers say, I can do it, and teens say, I won't do it. Toddlers want, <laughs> toddlers want more autonomy in their physical world. They want to be able to touch things, grab that cup, do it themselves, feed themselves dress themselves. And that can be frustrating. And I know not every child wants to dress themselves. <laughs> sometimes they, you know, that's annoying sometimes for, for those parents whose kids who, who don't. But a lot of that notion of being a toddler or a two or three-year-old is about finding out what you can do and experimenting in the world. And similarly, when kids move into adolescence, what they want is more autonomy, but they want more autonomy away from mum or dad. They want more autonomy in the physical world. They are similar in lots of ways, but what they want autonomy and independence is is a little bit different. So older kids really often want just more self-sufficiency, an opportunity to grow away from mum and dad to get some more freedoms, which I guess was granted to kids a few generations ago. You know, I grew up in an era where I think I was 12 or 13. I remember catching a train from Oakley where I lived into the city and going to the football, uh, the MCG or going to the movies on my own. And I know my own kids at that similar age, I didn't have that same same view. So I didn't grant them the same freedoms as I was that were granted to me. So it is more challenging for parents to grant kids those freedoms as well in this day and age.
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting point, Michael, because I, I find myself doing the same thing, hesitating to give my My daughter who's 14 you know control complete control of her schedule for example something which when I was 14 I had complete control of my weekends I you know had to get to my own tennis competition and arrange it for myself whereas I'm still kind of organizing her schedule so why do you think parents are hesitating to get kids to contribute more and and control more of their lives?
2: Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I think there's a few factors at play. Firstly, I mentioned earlier that I was born in an age which of larger families, although my I was in a family of four, so technically it's probably not a large family. But certainly in larger families, kids were granted more freedom because mum and dad tend to delegate more. They tend to be facilitators of the family. They can't do everything for every child. So often an older sibling would step in and do some of the parenting or look after a younger one. So mum and dad naturally step back. And as families have shrunk, and the mean number of kids in a family now is two in Australia, we tend to parent more individually. In some way, we know too. Much. We know a lot. We know when they, as I often joke to parents, if you have five kids, you wouldn't know if the youngest one turned up for breakfast. But job's right. You know, just come and tell me if you're hungry. Whereas when you've got two kids, you know exactly what they've had for breakfast and what's coming up. So we know a lot. Raising kids is always about space and intimacy. Space is the opportunity to grow away and do things on your own without someone looking over your shoulder. Intimacy is that opportunity for relationships. When we've got big families, intimacy is hard. It's hard to have a one-on-one relationship with every child, but space is easy. When you've got small families, space is our challenge, giving kids an opportunity to grow away and do things without us looking all the time. And intimacy is easy. So in some ways, it's to do with the smaller families. We know a lot about our kids. And also I think that the definition of parenting has shifted over the years as well. So a good parent a few years, you know, many years ago would have been one, well, let's go back 100 years. If you're a good parent in the Great Depression in Australia, all you had to do was point to your kids and saying they're alive and, you know, your job's half done. So the, the bar was pretty low. And as as we've moved on, I think the job of a what a good parent looks like has changed a bit. And if you had a larger family like myself, when I sort of grew up, I think the job of a good parent was raising, developing independence and a responsible kid. And as families have shrunk and generations have moved on, I think a lot of parents judge their their parenting a little bit on what their kids can do. We have a lot of vested interest in raising our kids. And so I think sometimes we over-control just that little bit. We want to make sure that the kids can do everything and solve every problem, so sometimes stepping back is the challenge and we know in larger families it doesn't matter if you've got a you know when you're in a family of five for example, parents are always stricter and closer in proximity to it to the firstborn child by the time you get down to the fifth one, they have a great deal of space now when we're ch- we've only got two kids in a family, we sort of practice and break <laughs> cut our teeth on the first one, and we know that the first one regardless of whether they're a small family or a large family, that first child never gets as much freedom as the last one. Parents get tired, (laughs) they get worn out, they they work out what's important and what's not. By the time they get to the fifth, sixth or seventh, they're in bed by the time the seventh one comes along. But if that ever happens, the smaller family and lack of space and also the change in what we see is what a good parent does means we're just a little bit more tied up with what our kids do
1: Mm.
0: so as parents what can we do to give our kids that Mm. independence you know if we don't have five kids and we can't rely on that you know the space that happens in a large family what should we be doing It's
2: a really hard one. That's where, if we can start early, so part of the trick is starting with any process is whatever process you put into place, it's really useful and becomes normal. So I'm watching my younger, my daughter who's got three kids and I'm just noticing how her three-year-old she Spends a lot of time with her language, her language, what I call languaging. Language is, uh, is. can you get this for me? Um, Harry pa- passed me that. Harry, can you take that, Carrie? So poor old Harry's doing, <laughs> doing lots of things which mum would probably do for herself. She gives him the opportunity to cut his own food, to put the fl- food on the floor, to clean it up, etc. So the expectations are fairly high at a young age. That's part of the trick is getting in early. But I think sometimes it's just realising the fact that kids will survive with it, with it without us. Sometimes an illness in the family when mum gets ill or gets very, very busy. And you notice I said the word mum there because often it's, it's mums that yeah. are like primary parents. But sometimes when we get absolutely busy, we stop doing things for kids and then they'll suddenly fill the gap and start to do things for themselves. But having said that, sometimes when we're so busy at home, when both parents are working, We haven't got the time to allow kids to go at their own pace. So it's easier sometimes to clean up the mess. It's easier sometimes just to feed them and get out the door. It's easier sometimes to give in to kids because I don't want to have that battle. Busyness is really hard. So I think as a parent, it's about awareness, being aware, be start small. Don't suddenly go right. Roast dinner tomorrow. Uh, Five year old. <laughs> you're going to start tomorrow, but we start in little ways by getting kids to help in in small ways. So, can you set the table? From my experience, one of the easiest starting places is around the kitchen table. Is getting kids to set the table, take things away from the table, maybe help you. Can you grab and grab the such and such out of the fridge for me and pass it to me? So, getting kids to feel useful and be useful as well. Again. Sometimes we just want the food done. Sometimes it's quickest if I can do it in 20 minutes. We've all experienced that where as soon as a child joins in, enthusiastically sometimes joins in and helps, suddenly that 20-minute meal takes twice as long. So, again, balance is important there.
1: And so one of the things I'm really keen to also explore is like how do you manage setting you know what i would call the minimum acceptable standard for a task so if you're thinking about something like you know as they get older getting them to help with meal planning and grocery shopping and things but you know my son's idea of a perfect dinner is two minute noodles probably doesn't meet the minimum threshold for you know food groups so how (laughs) do we you know, strike that happy medium between you know probably my standards which are way up high and his which are
2: very very low yeah no that's a good point so I think it's really important. We always, I always start where kids are at. So this is the old primary teacher in me. I taught in primary school for 13, 14 years. So one of the, the training there was we wherever kids are at, you try and start. So if you're teaching them maths, you try and start wherever they're at So and what their interests are. But that doesn't mean that you accept, that you just, you accept what I call crap. So sometimes kids will, you know, I've made the bet, that'll do. If they're seven and they're just... You know, quickly flicking something over the bed and that'll do it, you might turn around and say, no, mate, I reckon you can do better than that. But if you're a three-year-old making a bed, maybe arrange the teddy and fix the doona up and put your pillow on. That's a three-year-old's <laughs> version of making the bed. So I think we start from where kids are at, but try and push them along a lot. So I use a, a, a notion, I've written about the notion of a junior version of the game. So that comes from a lot of sports such mm. as cricket, football, netball, all created junior versions of the games to make it easier for the kids to play. Oz kick in Australian rules, for example, is you know, they did away with the tackling. They made the ground smaller and less kids. So it made it easier for them to play. And as they get older, then they the rules increase. So I think sometimes we as adults need to make the game easier for kids to play. So you know, picking up where they are at. As I say, I often use the bed as a simple example. That's a a young one, you know, makes the bed just sooth- smooth the doona, but as kids get older, our expectations rise. Sometimes we let particularly boys off, of the, you know, that'll do because they can be from an organisational perspective. <laughs> they're sometimes not as well organised and they'll often put up with lesser standard than sometimes girls will, actually. So we often let them get away with it. But I think there are times when we go, no, have another go at it. Come on, do that again. And as for two-minute noodles, if it's around food, <laughs> mm, um, <laughs> not sure on that one. I might buy out of that. I've got a funny story about two-minute noodles and independence. This is actually a true story. My son was always an interesting one. He's, he li- didn't like to be told what to do. He liked to do things in his own way. And that's very typical. Boys tend to be what we call heuristic learners. And a heuristic learner is someone who learns from the experiences. You can tell me all you want, mum or dad, but I'll find out for myself. You know, sometimes those kids who want to develop independence... We need to not rescue them, but allow them to experience that less pleasant thing for them to go, oh, next time I won't do that. Now, if there's danger, you know, if it's a child's about to pat a dog and we know that dogs, uh, that now's not the time to learn from experience. You know, you take their hand away because you don't want to be bitten. But there are times when learning from experience is a good thing. But I remember when he was about 15, he went on a school camp and a school camp, was all about developing independence this school they went to was very much about developing independence so school camp said we're going on a hike it's a five-day hike you got to bring your own food and everything you guys organize that so my son thought oh look they're pretty light I'm going to take two minute noodles <laughs> and so he did so for five days he lived on two minute noodles and he got back and he said it was the worst decision he ever made because his friends had food which was really nice and he had two-minute noodles the teachers laughed about it we spoke to them later and they said look we could have got him out of it but it was a stupid thing he did and we told him it's said, like you're gonna get sick of it after three days he said no he was a teenager i know better and that's an example sometimes where we've got to step back as parents and let them learn
0: yeah that's the challenge it's that resisting that urge not to rescue and let them experience it for themselves and as you mentioned before, just, like, expect the gap. Note that the standard's not going to be met or it's going to be really slow or it's not going to be yes, quite there, yeah. and be okay with that gap. Be okay with it. And,
2: and that's a really good point. That gap is a lovely way of saying it. And I've always tried to, and it's, an, it's a teaching method as well, I always tried to, if kids try to do something, I always accept their standard as a good standard as long as, long as they were trying. So I remember when my son used to set the table I always knew when he set the table because with the knife and fork were the wrong way round, because he was a left-hander. We'd never actually say, oh, you know, do it the right way. Every time you do it again, next time we go, right, this one goes there and this one goes there, it eventually, he'd put it down to be in the wrong spot. But he was pretty genuine about it. So rather than correct him, we would, next time he did it, just before the experience would remind him again, don't forget you put the right hand. So, yeah, that's part of the job of, if we want kids to be independent, part of our role is to actually be a patient teacher. Yeah.
0: So in the Spoon for Generation, you suggest things like meal planning and prep and getting the kids to manage their own school forms, pocket money. What are, what are the sort of junior versions of the game for these key activities? I love that. I love that. I
2: love that. Okay, Thanks. Junior version of the game, picking up the language. All right. Again, I think pocket money, I love pocket money, developing independence and helping kids to be better organised. And it's about allowing them, giving them a little bit of autonomy over their own lives. And this is one of the issues with, with kids of all ages. They want some autonomy over their lives, particularly kids when they move into to adolescence. And pocket money is a really good way to give them some control. You can give it to them when they're five or, and I've noticed my daughter gives her four-year-olds or her son, I think he was four, maybe five when he started getting his pocket money and he got it in in three jars and he still gets it old school, but he gets it in coins. And I I still see him. He puts one in one of the jars, which is for spending one in another jar, which is for saving another one, which is for for charity or for giving as his his mum calls it. He has a little bit of autonomy there. And whenever he asks for something, Mum, can I have her? His mother often says, I'll get you that now. You can pay me back later. And I've heard her, whenever he say, whenever she says, I'll loan you the money or I'll give you that money because you haven't got it now and you can pay me back later, he says no. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly the decision is his. Suddenly I want to make that decision. And she told me she does that because she likes to give him treats, but it gets it's never a treat if she's always asked all the time, Mum, buy me, Mum, buy me, Mum, buy me. So that little aspect of pocket money has now shifted that decision-making over to him, even at the age of five. And certainly as kids get into, into primary school and into secondary school, having that little bit of extra pocket money gives them some, gives them some autonomy, gives them some responsibility and independence, bringing my kids up. And I think I, I wrote about it in Spend for Generation. We're pretty hardcore. So we gave our kids a reasonable amount of money, but it was tied with what they had to spend it on. Their bus fare they got as pocket money. My two girls used to ride their bus to school most of the day. My son often would ride his bike and pocket that money. Saying they had enough allocation of pocket money in secondary school to get one meal from the canteen. You could either spend it or not, or you could make your own meal. Again, that's just that expanding. So it's expanding what they get, but also expanding what they had to spend it on. It also helped. And I think it's sometimes a good idea for parents to have some benchmarks, to have a chat. And maybe if there's two of you in the family to work out what's a benchmark? What what am I willing to do? And when am I willing to, to hand over responsibility to a child? And that's really what it is. There's a difference between a child as a helper and a child taking some responsibility. And responsibility means if a child does forgets it, they've got to fix it up. So we decide in our own family, and I just mentioned this as a, I guess, a benchmark or as an example for people. We In our family, we had the notion of my wife and I made the kids lunches in primary school, but never put them in their bags. We'd make them put them on the bench. It was their job to put them in the bags. In secondary school, you made your own lunch. In mm. primary school, basically you got your own breakfast. And what would often happen is the older one would get the younger ones breakfast as well. So left it for them to get breakfast. So sometimes it's called self-help. And, and self-help, we always start from the body. And you think about it, it's when toddlers are very young, they want things closest to their body. So we, we start with feeding and dressing and move your way out from there. And By the time you get to adolescence, they've had all the independence and self-sufficiency that they can from their body and they're looking at widening it around the world. So one of the easiest way to think about is how can I develop my child's self-help skills starting from their body and and pushing out? So there's two aspects of this we really have been talking about as we're talking about organisation. We're also talking about independence there's the self-help, what we call self-help or self-sufficiency. And there's also an aspect of helping others. That's why kids can help, should be able to help at home without being paid. <laughs> uh, and that's how kids can contribute as well to the family.
0: Mm, that is a good point in terms of pocket money and whether it's linked to chores in the household or whether it's unlinked or whether there's there's still chores that yeah. go on. You know, your pocket money has nothing to do with that. What have you seen as being most effective?
2: Yeah, good. That's a really good question. I'm going to talk about it philosophically and then I'm going to talk about it from a practical perspective. A lot of people actually say kids should be paid for pocket money because it, because it teaches them there's you don't get a free lunch. Life never pays you. You need to be able to earn your way. And I think that is a a terrific notion. We need to teach that with our kids. However, it doesn't have to be done always by linking it to pocket money. So I guess my philosophy around raising kids is the simple fact that in a family unit, it's about wheat we've got to focus on the family. So we share the jobs, we share the joy, we share problems, but not all problems. But if some child has a problem, we might all talk about how we can work out and help this child. But we also share the wealth. So that's where pocket money comes in as a shared part of that sort of family wealth. And you get a you know, small amount on a regular basis and you get to make some decisions about how you spend that. If you keep spending it on really on rubbish all the time, well, maybe we'll relook at it. But there's also an expectation that you help around the house because that's what we as families do. Rosters work well from that notion, you know, developing a little roster of some of the bigger jobs. You can do that from a very early age and change them around as well. The worst job was the dishwasher. So it was always done by kids. Sometimes I'd move away when I'd see a five-year-old get the stuff out. <laughs> I don't want to watch this. Uh, but that, we used to rotate that around as well. So two or three little jobs on a roster is a really good thing. And what the roster does, it it gives the authority, takes authority away from you. Instead of you all the time saying, do the dish roster, do this, feed the dog, feed the cat. It's the roster almost who's doing it, if that makes sense. There are times in families and kids will, they want to, they're saving for a surfboard or they're saving up for something. There's no doubt. And we've done it in ourselves that, yep, we'll give you some extra pocket money if you want to earn it as well there. But while I like to to keep pocket money separate from behavior and pocket money separate from helping get different strategies to get kids to help and get different strategies to get kids to behave i've seen parents who will take away money from kids because they misbehave or give their kids money because they really you know they've done the right thing that's a recipe for disaster i've seen some things which are pretty awful there and doesn't doesn't end well because everything becomes a negotiation.
1: Yes. So as the kids get a bit older and we start to think about other sort of administrative things that often fall on parents, I think, you know, managing their schedule and their social life just can become, you know, quite a big task so what sort of ages could we expect children to kind of manage their own schedule and start you know you know public transport or walking permitting getting themselves to where they need to be and how can it be done safely
2: that's a really that's a really good question how can it be done safely and at what age I'm not going to duck this one but every child's different so it's very hard to come up with an age but I always use the notion of when kids start asking for something when kids start say mum can i go to that mum can i have that's an indication that they're getting ready to do that so rather than saying no in 2 years time or no when you're older we can look at ways we can help make that happen so if it is the example of a, a 12 13 year old who would like to be able to navigate their way into the city and this happened with a, with my own son so good way to use the use the example he was 14 15 we live on the peninsula and he wanted to go to a big day out concert with his mate. So, as a parent, you you, you sort of run through the filter. You think, what's his mate like? Is he responsible or not? <laughs> no, the, is he going to be that astray? All of that sort of thing. You run through and go, well, what's what's my son like? And what's his experience? And his experience had been he's pretty good at that sort of stuff. So you, you run that through as a filter. Yeah, they're they're pretty good. And then my wife and I had a chat and we said, I don't think he's actually quite capable. That's a big ask to go from Frankston all the way into the city by train, do a a concert and then all the way back. But we wanted to, we recognised he was pretty genuine the way he asked and we wanted to make him be able to do it next time. Mm. So we drove him all the way into the city He caught the train from Melbourne out to the showgrounds. We spent the day in the city and then we met him at 7 o'clock or something like that at the the Flinders Street station. We drove him home. The next year, I think it was about 16 or whatever it was, he was okay and he went on his own. Mm. So that fitted nicely. It was a nice little doable thing for us. But if we can... See when kids are wanting to do things and start to skill them up and give them the opportunity to do things for themselves. That's a really good sign. I've always used that as a sign when kids start to ask for do things. That's an opportunity then to go, well, you know, they're going to be ready in a, in a year or two or a month or two. Let's see how we can make this happen. Even if it's, mum, can I can I get you a cup of tea? Oh, no, it's the water's really hot. Well, maybe, you know, how are we going to start that process? Maybe I'll just pour the hot water in and you can, you know, it's going to be halfway and you can carry it in. There's always a way we can, we can start that process, particularly in secondary school. Kids are often very capable mm-hmm. of doing things. And often it's a really simple things, such as getting them to ask the teacher for a, a favour. My daughter went over overseas when she was 15 to on exchange mm. and she came home as a 15-year-old she wanted to, to go to Denmark on exchange because she didn't have to learn the language because she found out that Danes speak a lot of English. So that showed what she wanted to do, not to go over for the language. But my wife and I, because she was young, 15 is really young to yeah. go away uh, for 12 months on exchange as she found out. To prove that she was capable of doing, the, doing it, we actually turned around to her and said, okay, you've got to drive this project. We understand that you want to go but one of your friends has gone and you've heard it's great, you've got to drive the project. And driving the project meant you find out who this group is, you you make the phone calls, we're all the intermediary, we'll take you and we'll do everything, but we want to make sure that you can run this, this project. And she did. She was the one who organised and said, we've got to go to a night here, et cetera. So she did a lot of that. And that was for two reasons. Firstly, it was to make sure she was fully invested in it, Um, if she wasn't going to do that since she wasn't fully invested. And secondly, if she could do that, that was proof that she was able to handle life without mum and dad all the time. My other thing I often say with kids, particularly teenagers, when they say they want to go somewhere, I often say to them, convince me, you want to do this, now convince me, tell me about what's happening. Well, and and that's often a good way for either them to realise that uh, maybe it's going to be harder than they thought, whatever it is, and secondly, it'll give you an idea if they've if they've got an understanding as well.
1: And that makes me laugh, Michael, because a friend of mine recently received a PowerPoint presentation from their seven-year-old <laughs> about why they should get a dog. Um, so I think they took the convincing <laughs> their level. parents to a whole new level. So
2: <laughs> I have a theory about pets, and pets are there's a deferred notion to pets. Parents always look after their kids' pets because their parents looked after their pets. Think about that one. Yes. <laughs> yeah. On a serious note, pets are fantastic for kids and it doesn't have to be a dog. It can be the guinea pig. It can be the the, the small pets which kids bring up because it teaches them A, to nurture and B, it makes someone else reliant on them. Whenever I work with kids and I, I used to run leadership programs in, in, in school, so when I left teaching, I moved into the parenting area and we ran leadership programs in school. And we, we still have a, a program which runs in primary schools called the Young Leaders Leaders Program. But I remember when I used to work with kids, I used I used to ask them a bunch of questions and one which was always an interesting one, particularly when you ask an 11-year-old because some of them couldn't answer it. And this is a good one for parents to think about this because I've often said it in parenting presentations and I, I hear this, oh, oh, hmm. I get this quiet. And it's just this simply... What do you do at home that someone else relies on? What is it that you do at home that someone else relies on? You know, so that's where you're looking after a, a pet, someone's rely, you know, the pet's reliant on that, or is it emptying the garbage or whatever? Is it you got some little responsibility that someone else relies on? So pet keeping's good mm, for that.
0: My my son's been putting together a little campaign about getting pets, so I'm gonna yeah, make some suggestions there because. <laughs>
2: Doing his approach. <laughs> be careful what you wish for for pets because don't forget it might be you who looks <laughs> after it. But anyway, that's another.
1: So I guess one that's also very interesting to me is to start to think about technology and, you know, especially, you know, we've experienced, I guess, the, the rules have loosened substantially in my household because of lockdown. But, you know, I've put quite strict screen time limits on all of my devices. So at what age, you know, shall I start to be letting them kind of, you know, go free yeah. and and stop controlling what the amount of time and I guess what they can see?
2: Yeah, I don't know if you ever let kids at any age go wholus, bolus, just off you go. I think we're always monitoring what, even when kids are 16, 17, we need to be having an idea of what's going on in their lives and are you going out to parties? What are you doing? And it's not, oh, now you're 17, 18, hit the terps whenever you want or whatever it is. Um, and, And that's quite similar always with the digital technology, I think, you know, that's you're dead right. The game's changed a lot now. Kids spending more time. The questions to be asking is not so much how much time, but what are you using it for and what else could you be doing? And I've been talking to Dr. Christy Goodwin, who's doing some fantastic work in Australia on in the area of digital media and digital technology and parents. And she does some work for us for parenting ideas. And she just ran a, a great webinar with had a, a thousand people come along on digital devices, answering just that question. And she basically comes up with the the viewers. It's not the amount of time, it's what they're using it for. And it's also the opportunity cost. So while they're in front of a screen, they're not outside, they're not not playing with, with friends. And again, I'm going to go back to the whole notion of it is all about balance. And if your child's learning all the time and does all their learning in front of a screen, there needs to be other opportunities to do learning. If they're involved in entertainment, always in front of a screen, they're not being entertained at in other places. So it really is that opportunity cost is now we're looking at as one of the big things. So no easy answer to that one, but have a look at the balance and make sure kids are not just spending all their time there, but playing outside, mixing with other people, mixing with the family. And often, and we've discussed this, to a lot. It's often the kids who are at risk who fall through the cracks when it comes to digital media. So I think most parents are now pretty aware of that message of a number of us grew up at a time where you stick your kids in front of the TV is the, as the ba- electronic babysitter there for three or four hours. Great. And we know that's not good for kids. And I think parents now are aware that spending all the time in front of a screen is not, that, is not great for their mental health. It's not great for their social health as well. And I've noticed just as, as an aside, of Someone who's, who's given presentations up to, you know, 80 presentations a year. I've been giving digital presentations over the last 18 months. And I know for a fact, because I gave a couple of presentations in front of an audience in May when we were allowed to in Melbourne, and my skills were so rusty, I'd forgotten what it's like. And then suddenly realised, wow, I'm digitally okay, but my skills in front of, a uh, away from the digital is are not any good because I've gotten very rusty. It's part of our lives. There's no doubt about it. It's part of our lives. But there's also other aspects of our lives as well. And that follows through with kids. So I don't think we ever divest our responsibility as parents, even when they're teenagers. We need to be what I call monitoring, <laughs> going, knowing what's going on, having those conversations, you know, three hours here, and that's a good enough time. And one of the things about teenagers is they need to be challenged. They need parents who will actually challenge them as well and not just accept and go,
0: oh, are you a teen? that's
2: okay Yep.
0: <laughs> so yeah looks like dino we're still going to be looking at the life admin tools we can use to monitor screen time and automate just like the roster takes it away it's not the ros it's not us that's telling you to do the dishwasher
1: it's the roster yeah, but I have to now become a digital expert because my, you know, twelve-year-old yeah. is navigates, figures out how to get around everything. So I've got to like take a degree in screen time settings mm-hmm. so that I can trick him into making <laughs> sure that he complies. Uh, I guess I knew that that was the answer, Michael. I guess I was hoping you were going to say magically. No, no. When he turns fifteen, you can just let yeah, go. But
2: no, <laughs> no. Actually, <laughs> I'll, I'll be a boring old parenting person now. <laughs> <laughs> and the boring old parenting person and found out that the eighteen, the boys in the 18 to 24 age group are the, the most at-risk group. And one of the reasons is that they've moved away from most of their connections, their school connections and workplace and often family connections. We need to always be sort of keeping an eye on, on kids all the way through, particularly as they move into early adulthood as well. But that's well, another story.
0: It did, it did sort of trigger in me some ideas too around how people are, navigating the pandemic and the things that they're getting their kids to do that they wouldn't possibly have done before, like having to leave them because you have to go to the supermarket and you can only take one person in the family. So you're leaving your kids at home, which you would not have done at this age, or you're sending your kids up to the shops because you've got yet another Zoom meeting and you need some groceries so the kids might be going up to the shops by themselves to buy something at a younger age. I know my kids have been up to shops. I've left them. I've never left them in the past. But there are some opportunities there for the kids to be contributing more and growing during this time.
2: Oh, there certainly are. I had a conversation with a group of principals in Queensland at a conference earlier this year when we could go to conferences and one of the big th- comments they said was kids develop a lot more independence in, in primary school. And one of the things they said was that, because parents couldn't go in for the school gate. Yeah. So they have to meet them at the school gate leave them there and off they go. So the kids carry their own bags, do their own messages and all the rest of it. So, yeah, I can see that. I can see one other aspect. I'm not sure what it's like where you are, but I'm seeing kids at the moment and I'm sure your listeners won't mind knowing that this is being recorded during a lockdown. But where I am, I'm seeing a lot of kids ride push bikes around in lockdown, you know, after school or, you know, Probably you know lunchtime inverted commas, which is fantastic. So I think there's some pluses here where kids are get, getting a little bit more freedom. They're not as in as fully invested in after school activities, and a lot of kids mm. in this day and age have very busy after school activities. And there's a cost to that. And one of the costs is that kids miss the opportunity to keep themselves busy, miss the opportunities of, of just having a bit of fun and and mucking around. So it looks like mucking around might be on the back on the agenda for a bit as well. so there's there's some there's some pluses there. yeah. And you know the, the, the parenting researcher actually says that why mucking around and play is really important is and free play is puts a locus of control on kids. They can control it, as opposed to you now doing after-school activities, which adult organised and adult initiated. Oh. So when kids start to play their own things, they become very creative. They practice conflict resolution. They do a whole bunch of stuff as well that we adults don't know about. In a way, we don't really want to know about it, and until until something don't come to me until you, unless you've got some blood, is the <laughs> reaction.
0: Yeah, I, I laughed when they close the playgrounds and the kids in our neighbourhood just gravitate to an oval where there's this massive pine tree and instead of them all climbing over the climbing equipment in the playground, they were all in this one tree making cubbies and hanging out. And then when there was a little rope put around the tree, they all gravitated to this kind of like garbage dump slash building site and they were just mucking around in there. So I was kind of delighted that they found these wild pl- ways to play can't be deterred by the playground being closed. But yeah, it's great. Out.
2: Lovely story.
0: <laughs> now you touched on it a little bit earlier before about some of the gender expectations that are placed on kids when it comes to looking after themselves essentially and contributing in households. Are there different things we need to keep in mind around how we're parenting kids of different genders?
2: <laughs> yeah, there's cultural expectations around gender. And I made the point when I was discussing Uh, my book, Why Firstborns rule the World and Laterborns Want to Change It, that a lot of expectations go on firstborns. However, if a firstborn for some cultures is a girl, then maybe the firstborn boy who may be second in the family is treated more like a firstborn and the expectations are higher. So we certainly have gender expectations. But I think also too that girls, there's a natural predisposition for girls at a young age to be reasonably better organised than boys. So and that's around the early brain development. Boys will often need more coaching and I'm sure there's parents who are listening to this going, yes! And what do I mean by, <laughs> by coaching? You can often tell a girl to, you know, line your shoes up or put make your shoes neat and they'll have a fair idea what that means but you might have to actually show your son what, you know, line your shoes up like this, here, do it with me. Or if we're trying to organise their homework, Boys will often need assistance to be organised, and it's often around the, the way the brain is in the early years is developed. So, the brain of a girl in the in the earlier years in, in, in childhood is more focusing on verbal skills, fine motor skills, and social skills, for the finer points, and boys are more what focus on gross motor skills, visual skills and so they're they're developing different aspects so that's why sometimes boys get really flummoxed by I can't get organized I can't I don't know how to do it so we often as parents need to show them the way and and take the time there to to show them so I think gender wise they're not the same we often have expectations of girls which are different than boys and also development wise sometimes it's easier for girls to be a little bit more organized than it is for boys
1: well, that's really interesting, Michael. So, but what about birth order? You mentioned it briefly before. How's that likely to impact who's going to be more <laughs> organised or adept at creating systems?
2: Well, they, firstborns are supposedly and supposedly more the more organised group, but I guess gender comes in there as well. So, I haven't really looked at birth order as far as being organised goes. I know firstborns are. are tend to be more detail-oriented and more introverted. I think mm. whether that goes hand-in-hand with being organised, mm. I'm not sure. I think there's a little bit around about what, what's been expected of you as well when you are growing up. So in my family, the expectations around girls helping out were different than boys helping out. Now, I think it still holds true to a, a reasonable degree, although we're yeah. catching up.
0: I think there's so many factors for parents to keep in mind in terms of, you know, gender, Definitely. the times we're living in, birth order, to bring some compassion and some patience to that those you
2: know those moments. We, we can overthink it a bit yeah <laughs>
0: yeah
2: can i i like to always and i don't want to overthink this. <laughs> i always put it down this and you know, i don't want to get philosophy it's not the time for philosophy or anything like that so one way to look at look at it is and i always look at parenting this way there's there's, there's three aspects to it so it's genetic so it starts off i call it g and t gin and tonic so you'll remember that Genetics at the at the bottom. G is for genetics. T is for temperament. So kids are born with genetics and born with a certain temperament. So genetic angle is what's passed on from parents, and the temperament is something you are born with and it doesn't change over time. I've got two girls. I've got a as I've mentioned before, and they're at either end of the sociability scale, which is part of temperament. I've got a slow to warm up and a quick to warm up. As kids, they were treated. Had to treat them differently. My slow to warm up. Whenever we go into a new social situation as a four or five-year-old, she'd take a time just to get to warm up. In the meantime, the older one was, she's off playing. And the younger one would just have to wait a time. And then off she'd go once she got warmed up, so to speak. That hasn't changed in 30 years. It's still much the same. So the GNT, most parents will know that's the aspect of we've just got to work with that we've you can't change it you've got to work with that the slow to warm up yep I'm gonna to have to just wait with you while you and I'm gonna to have to give you some few tips to help you make friends the other one no dramas then then we throw around that the birth order and and the birth order is what is about differences as well and kids are niche marketers and they'll often go for the things in the family which which give them attention. So if the first one's a responsible one, there's a reasonable chance the second one might be a pest, at least I know I'm around. If the first one's a really independent one and does everything that keeps mum happy, there's a reasonable chance the second one won't be as independent because they might do something else. So if you're talking about independence, they're not all going to be as independent in the same possible way. So that counts for the differences. And then what we throw around that, the third aspect is, what we call a family frame, which is probably what we're talking about now. You can tell your family frame by what your kids have in common. As they get older, if they're all pretty independent, even your least independent one, but compared to others, they're all pretty independent. They can give themselves a feed, cook a meal, whatever it might be. Well, that shows that independence is part of your family frame. If they're all you know, excellence or they're all very curious or they're all learners, that shows that curiosity and learning is part of your family frame. Mm. So that's your values. So the things you nag your kids about makes up your family frame. And that's what you, your kids have in common. So in some ways, that's the space we're playing at now. That's the parenting space. All the things you nag your kids about and you're on to them about, that's that's what we operate from. Is, that's the real parenting impact. You've got to adapt to the genetics and you've got to work around that. And, you know, I love my child to be independent, but... He's not quite there. He hasn't got the skill set, hasn't got the temperament set. We'll do our very best. But it's the commonalities. That's the space we're playing at. So don't sweat the small stuff. Think about the big stuff. And then it's more the long term as well.
0: And that's a beautiful place to finish, Michael. I love that idea of thinking about the family frame and and taking things up to that higher level. That's setting the landscape for everything else thank you so much for your sharing of your experiences and your ideas today
2: that's a pleasure it's been fun
0: so listeners you can find more from Michael at parentingideas.com.au if you'd like to hear more we're thrilled that we could have you here to kick off season six with us fantastic thanks very much Thanks for listening. Show notes for this episode are available at lifeadminlifehacks.com. And if you're a fan, please subscribe and share the love and tell a friend or review us in your podcasting app. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. It's Jeep 4x4 season. Make your next adventure epic
2: and hurry in now for great deals. Now well-qualified returning FCA lessees get a low-mileage lease on the 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Laredo 4x2 for $369 a month for 24 months with $2,999 due at signing. Tax title license extra. No security deposit required. Call 1-888-925-JEEP for details. Requires dealer contribution and lease through Ally Financial. Current lease must end by 6
1: Extra charge for miles over 20000 Residency restrictions apply. Take delivery by 5 23 Jeep is a registered trademark.